Hi and welcome to another episode of Magical Match, a place to hear about real people with real stories around the important topic of stem cell donation and transplants. In each episode, I'll be chatting with donors, recipients, those in supportive roles and people who have been affected by either a personal experience or through another's inspirational story. It is my hope that by opening the conversation around stem cell donation, we can inspire more people to sign up to the Stem Cell Register, offering more hope to those in need. In this episode, I spoke with Jake and Nelson Andrade. Jake was diagnosed with leukaemia at the age of 13 years old. He underwent not one but two stem cell transplants. Jake talked very candidly and openly about his experience with cancer. We touched on the reality of what a diagnosis like this felt like at that young age. And he and Nelson explained to me how it had affected them as a family. Hello and welcome to Magical Match, Jake and Nelson. And Jake, if you could just start the conversation by explaining how you were feeling at the age of 13 and um, and what was happening in your life at that time. Um, so, yeah, I was 13 years old. It was about um, March 2016. And I was, for about three months before that, I'd been experiencing some symptoms and that gradually got worse. So from January to March 2016. What sort of symptoms? What sort of symptoms were you experiencing? So I had a cold that wouldn't go away. Also got headaches, which uh, was becoming more frequent, um, drowsy, um, tired, very tired, um, like severe fatigue, um, mm. breathless. But it wasn't until the until around March, mid-March, when I started to experience the really strange symptoms like swollen lymph nodes and a bite on my leg that didn't recover when I was eventually diagnosed with um, acute myeloid leukaemia on March 24th. How did that make you feel? And then I'll go to Nelson and your dad and and ask him how, how that was for him as a parent. But at, at that point, did, were you aware of what leukaemia even was? I'd heard of it. I know it had something to do with the blood, but the symptoms I was experiencing, I didn't think that that would be what it was. Um, you know, everyone gets a cold, everyone gets tired. I didn't really associate that with um, leukaemia. So it was a bit of a shock and I didn't know exactly what it was, but I had heard of it. Okay. And, and how did that feel for you, Nelson? I mean... It's quite a journey going through this scenario, but it's not something that you expect. Yeah, absolutely not. So we took him to the doctors because he had a like a bite mark at the back of his leg and the doctor gave him penicillin. Okay. Um, and initially I thought because that night when he took the penicillin, his heart was beating really fast. He had a high temperature. Uh, so initially I thought, you know, he's allergic to penicillin, right? Uh, so the next yeah. day we took him to the doctor after giving him paracetamol, he calmed down took him to the doctor, and then the doctor kind of said, no, he can't be allergic to penicillin. It's not possible. And we were like, why not, right? We're not, we're not professionals, we're medical professionals, but that was my kind of like understanding of what was happening. Um, so the doctor sent us straight to um, the hospital for a blood check, blood test. Yeah. And, and it was there that they kind of confirmed that it could possibly be leukemia. Again, just like Jake, we've heard of it. Never really had anybody that we have met or known that had leukemia. Uh, I take that back. We, I did have friends that had leukemia, their children had leukemia. But if, it, if it's not happening to you, it's just something that's out of sight, out of mind kind of, the, kind of thing, right? That's exactly right. So I knew what it was, didn't know exactly what, what encompassed. Yeah, what it, what it actually means at the time. Right, um, yeah. And you're given so much information, aren't you, in, in Definitely. at that moment of diagnosis. And so... Yeah. 
Jake, you know, when you realised what was what you understood to be happening, did you sort of expect to be straight into hospital? Yeah, it was quite a shock because I was in hospital straight away because I my symptoms developed rapidly um, throughout that day. So from March 23rd to 24th, I got worse very quickly. So, yeah, so I did expect it. I didn't expect to be so long. I didn't expect the, the stay in hospital to be so long either. But I was actually because I'd been feeling so ill, I was, I was actually glad that um, something was being done about it. Yeah, and you're, you know, you're a child, you're 13, you're, you're looking at your options at school and what you're going to be planning to do and, and all of those things. So, yeah. you know, staying in a hospital ward and staying in a room for, for long periods of time, and, it, it, you know, with, with cancer, it, it can be sort of weeks and months, can't it? Yeah. So you, you stayed in hospital and presumably straight away a round of chemotherapy. And you were at Adam Brooks then, was that right? Yeah. So I was diagnosed on March 24th. I had my bone marrow biopsy later that day, which confirmed mm-hmm. leukaemia. Um, and then, yeah, treatment started the next day at Adam Brooks. OK. And that was 10 days in total. Can I ask you, Jake, how, you know, as a 13-year-old, how did you, and I hope I'm not overstepping the mark here, but how did you feel going through chemotherapy? How did you feel? Yeah. So, because I was so ill, I was glad that something was being done. But also because I was so young, I didn't realise how severe the effects could be. Like, I, I'd i seen, you know, people with cancer, you know, on Facebook and TV. And, you know, you, you see, like, the stereotypical look of a cancer patient over you know, the bald head in hospital. And I was like, OK, I can do that. But I just didn't realise there would be the infections. I didn't realise there would be so much sickness. Um, so it came as quite a shock. Um, but my initial thoughts were finally something's being done and will be made better. So I guess I wasn't actually as sad as I, as most people would be because I was young. I wasn't expecting it. Um, I just wanted to get better. Yeah. And I think, I think at that age also, you're, like you say, you're oblivious to the sort of seriousness of, uh, and the nature of, of what's actually happening to you. And Nelson, for, for you and your wife, how did you sort of cope? How did you understand all of that going on at the time? Well, so initially, and I think I just wrote in Jake's blog this week about that. So initially, I was in denial, to be honest with you. I thought the bite mark was a, a tick, maybe a tick mark that had got infected. So I was looking for all possible you know, explanations of why Jake was sick. Um, even with the test results they came back, the doctors came back with, I, I spoke with a consultant. I was like, you know, it has to be something different. So there was a lot of denial there. And obviously, we were shocked um, because we didn't want it to be cancer, right? It, how could it be us? You know, we're just a normal family that haven't really done anything and did we deserve it. And so a lot of stuff runs through your mind. And mostly, it was shock. The first, I would say, week in the hospital, it was a blur uh, because there was so much going on. Like Jake going into the operation to get his Hickman line, just constant 24 hours around the clock and being looked after by nurses, beeping machines everywhere. Uh, it was surreal. It was, it, was, it was a big shock for all of us. Yeah. Uh, and then we had to think about, you know, his sister, my daughter, uh, which was a three years um, older at that time. Um, so how were we going to manage to look after Jake and Christy as well? It was, it was you know, something that we had to get around our heads around pretty quickly. And how did the diagnosis affect Christy? How did she feel about it? You know what, I, we really don't know, uh, even until this day. Obviously, we know it affected her, but she was, you know, try to support as much as possible. And, you know, her, her continuing to go to school or do her GCSEs and stuff like that. 
and that's what she concentrated on. <clears throat> but I do know, you know, obviously it'll affect everybody. She just didn't show it as much. Yeah. She was trying to be as supportive as possible. Yeah, I understand that. I understand very much, actually, how you feel about that sense of denial at the beginning, because in our situation, we too were looking at ticks and that side of things and trying to work out how on earth this had happened so Mm -hmm. I understand it and I'm sure there are many people who are listening to this that will share that same feeling of sort of non-reality that that you find yourself in at very short notice and it happens very quickly doesn't it very quickly Jake, you'd had your, your first round of chemotherapy and neutrophils are going down but they took a while is that right? yeah yeah, I think that's um, quite common though, because yeah. um, even even when I relapsed, it was always the first round when um, when the neutrophils um, took slightly longer to recover than the previous rounds. Um, mm-hmm. But it did get quite worrying. I was uh, waiting quite a few weeks to the point where they had to do a bone marrow biopsy just to check that things were going the right direction. Um, mm-hmm. They were. I was, my bone marrow was just being a bit stubborn. Um, so yeah, that's not a bad thing being stubborn, you know. <laughs> <laughs> At what point did did the consultants discover or understand that you were at a high risk and needing a stem cell transplant? Yeah, so I had round one of chemo mm-hmm. and then I had round two, which was the same drug, but it was eight days rather than 10. And it wasn't until after round two when I started to see the haematologists. Up until then, I'd only seen oncology doctors. Okay. So I remember meeting the um, haematologists for the first time and um, they had this flow chart of standard risk, intermediate risk and high risk and that was of relapse and after round one I was 0.39% um, so I had to be um, I was moved to intermediate risk for round three so that determined round three round one determined round three round two determined round four so I then had round three but my results from round two then came back which found that I was 0.41% at right. leukemia and to be in standard risk I needed to be 0.1 so that even though I was having my intensified treatment for round three I still ended up having to have a transplant for round four. Okay, so you'd reached round three, and at that point, you didn't go for round four, the standard journey. No. For leukemia, no. you went uh, you went on a different protocol yeah. to then yeah. progress towards stem yeah. cell transplant. Because round three put me in remission, so it was um, 0%. But regardless of that result, I still had to go to transplant. So they made the decision based on the second yeah. round of chemotherapy that, yeah. that it left you at 0.41%. Yeah. Okay. And then obviously, did you run an appeal? Did the hospital run an appeal or were they checking? Did, did one of the charities get involved at that point? Yeah, it was mainly the hospital. And Nelson, as a, as a parent, you're obviously trying to keep Jake busy and occupied at this, at this age and stage while looking after your daughter as well. And how long was the wait to, to find a donor? You know, honestly, it wasn't too long. It was only, I would say, what, about a month, Jake? By the time, yeah, between the time they said you needed a stem cell transplant to getting a donor. Obviously, that was a bit of a worry for us because we didn't know, you know, getting a donor, getting a donor that matches anyway, um, is very, very slim. So we didn't know how this would materialize from the in the beginning, but we did have faith and we did have hope that at some point somebody would, you know, find a match. Um, the doctors were also very brilliant. They kind of explained to us that if they couldn't find a match, that there were alternatives. So we kind of rested a little bit easier. Um, we knew it was going to be more difficult, but so at the time you they told you initially that that they couldn't find a match. Yeah, so initially they said it would be tough to find a match. Okay. But that there were other alternatives if they couldn't find a match. Uh, okay. So our worry was that Jake would stay not in remission, but he would he would stop treatment while the, they were finding a match. 
So that was a bit of a concern for us because obviously we didn't want to wait. You know, we wanted to tackle, we wanted the doctors to tackle the disease. Um, so that mainly that was our concern. Yes, and I think there's opportunities sometimes, they call it bridging chemotherapy, where right. it's like an extra quick round just beforehand. And I can understand for anybody in that situation, you don't really want to go there mm-hmm. because it's very strong stuff. Okay, so you found a match, and, and as I understand it, the match was a cord donor. Yeah, so it was a cord donor from a female in France. Um, okay. I think it was eight out of 10 match. It was, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I certainly hear more and more of cord donors being a really good sort of viable match for more people, basically, because they're new pure cells, aren't they? So they haven't gone anywhere yet as such. I'm sure that's probably the wrong terminology. And I'm I'm certain that if any of the charities are listening out there, perhaps you can come on and explain exactly how (laughs) how the cord donor situation works. So you, you had this donor and you went off to Bristol, is that right? Yeah. And how was the process for you? I'd probably say it was um, easier than I was expecting because the reason why I was so upset about having to go to transplant was uh, hearing about all the side effects. Um, you know, I was sort of questioning, is it really worth it? You know, when we were signing up for um, signing all the consent forms, you know, there was like liver failure, death, you know, heart failure. That's all I associated the chemo with. I go there and it's just like a normal round of chemo. Of course, it was a challenge um, yeah. with like having to like urinate every hour, get the chemo out of my system. That's not very pleasant, is it? So there's... <laughs> no. It's uh, not straightforward, is it, a, a transplant? Because no. you you no. you think, you know, as, a, as an onlooker and somebody who hasn't been through the process, you think that it's fairly straightforward and it's just chemotherapy, but it's it's not, is it? No. So you went through the transplant. Well, how were you feeling? And also, how was your dad feeling about all of this and your mum? So once I actually was there, I think I was all right. I was really scared and I was dreading it. But by the time I was there and by the time I had my new cells, I had like this positive outlook of, okay, now it's just recovery from now. You know, I don't have to worry about any more treatment. That's it. Did you feel any different when you had these new cells? Not really, no. No. And that's something that um, surprised me as well. I was expecting to be a completely different person, but no, (laughs) nothing had changed. You think you hear all sorts of stories of, you know, does it change your DNA? And, and, (laughs) you know, you've changed your blood type, but you didn't change your blood type, did you? Not this time, no. And, uh, and and Nelson, for you and your wife and, uh, and your daughter, how, how were things staying in sort of isolation with your son? So going to Bristol just gave us a whole new set of challenges. So from Addenbrooke to our home, it's about 50 miles. So it's manageable. Uh, I worked in a, a job that where I can accumulate sick hours. And so having worked there for years, I had almost four or six months of sick hours that I could use. Uh, so we made a decision, and I think I mostly made that decision at the time when Jake got first diagnosed was that I would look after Jake at, in the hospital, um, obviously because I would still be getting paid. And then my wife, Heidi, would continue working as much as she could while still looking after Christy. But then when we heard we had to go to Bristol, that was a bit of a challenge. By that time, my sick leave had ran out, and then we took another decision to allow Heidi to go to Bristol with Jake. Um, because that would make most sense financially. Uh, and I would return to work and try to look after Christy as much as possible. And obviously, I, you know, going back and forth to Bristol would be easier on me than, than Heidi. So again, that brought a whole just different challenge. Um, I think from our home to Bristol is about 220 miles. So it's, it's, a, long, it's a long journey. It is a long journey, isn't it? Yeah. And it's you, it is, yeah. you get used to it. You do. It becomes a pattern, doesn't it? Um, it does, but it's yeah. it's not easy because everything is 
intense. It's intense at home and it's intense in hospital. So there's no real mm. sort of time to relax or switch off, is that? There isn't. No. So we tried to make it both comfortable for Christy because she was still going through her GCSEs. And then obviously I wanted to be there for Jake while he was going through this. Uh, so I spent a lot of time on the road um, and work. Luckily for me, work also allowed me to do some teleworking at the time as well. So they were very supportive. That is very good to hear. And if anybody's listening, particularly employers out there that find that their employees are in this situation, please, please be considerate and please do all you can to support the families that are going through this situation because it's not easy and you can't really imagine it until you're in it. The stem cell transplant essentially was a success. Yeah, five years in remission. That That is incredible how that transplant, you know, has changed your life to this point. You had the core stem cell transplant, you came home, back to normal fairly swiftly. Well, when I say normal, I mean that in the loosest sense. After my treatment, even the doctors agreed with me that education was priority now. So I had to, had a home tutor and kind of like settled into that um, and then I was back to school part-time by January 2017. Once I had my Hickman line out I was pretty much back to normal you know I was walking quite a bit. I was walking to school which is about 40 minutes each way. Amazing. I was yeah I was I completed my GCSEs, did my A-levels, started uni, even started publishing a book over lockdown. Yes we will get to that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> over lockdown I thought I'd you know start exercising so um, you know weightlifting, running. I was yeah, I was really healthy. And I'd say coming towards when COVID was, was when I had no health issues at all. Um, and I even had the late effects clinic at um, Adam Brooks. So that was four years after. So that was in 2020. And they found no problems at all. So I was completely healthy. Yeah, You were having an amazing time, essentially, yeah. apart from lockdown, obviously, when, when we all got sort of shut in. Talk me through what happened to change the the situation from both of your points of view, from you, Jake, obviously feeling perhaps feeling different or not feeling different. And then Nelson, from your point of view, if you noticed any differences in Jake as, as time went by. So, yeah, in October 2021, I was still feeling well. And I, I was going to my so appointments were yearly by this point. And they just found on a blood test that I was somehow neutropenic. And I I wasn't feeling it. I maybe had more sore throats than usual, but nothing to worry about. Yeah. And the doctor was like, well, it's a bit strange, but you have been saying that you've got sore throats, so maybe it's an infection because that can bring down neutrophils. So I was told to come back in a month, no improvement, and my yearly appointments then turned to monthly, then to weekly. And eventually they were like, no, something's wrong. Um, and I was still feeling well by this point. Yes, but it's so disappointing, isn't it? When, yeah. you, when you've been on a roll and you've been yeah. doing so well. Yeah, so yeah, by the 9th of December, 2021 I had a bone marrow biopsy and it found that I was 68% leukemia on um, December the 17th so I relapsed and I was still feeling well on my relapse so, so, so even by how, then you know how did, how did that make you feel when you were you've, you've been doing so well I mean it was a very difficult time in my life I see those five years and it was like I built up so much like success over that five years and it, it just like really disheartened me to see it just all crash down mm. and the stage of my life as well you know I was at uni in my second year and you're now 20 is that right yeah, you're 20 yeah. now and I yeah I was just I was doing so many things and then it just all you know it's like I signed my life away when I signed those papers to start treatment again and yeah and also the not just think about long term you know I was about to be put into my driving test as well 
but not just long term um also the the time period i was in over christmas i stayed in hospital over christmas it was lonely depressing it just wasn't nice no and for you nelson what was happening for your side of things was there anything that you were being directed towards or told about explained about for for jake no you know so we obviously we've been through it before um so we kind of knew really what the the symptoms or the the test revealed and we kind of had a feeling that it had come back we try to stay as positive as possible uh, and that's one of our themes that we've had since day one since the first diagnosis is staying as, as positive as possible um, looking at the brighter side of it not that there is a brighter side but you know trying to get through it and, and think about the future so when we heard the news that he had relapsed it was just devastating i mean we've been through it before we knew what to expect um but somehow this felt a little bit different um i you know because of, he did have a, a lot of chemo previously uh, so we worried about secondary cancers and you know will he you know and sorry about this Jake and, and it might be very emotional will he make it through the treatment because it is very intense what does it mean you know is it going to be in another transplant is it you know it's really difficult because you don't know at that point how it's going to turn up and, you know right. the the first time at least we had some type of hope you know that that he would get better um but the second time going through treatment again going through a stem cell transplant again it takes a toll on your body and i you know i didn't wish that on him so i think i remember sitting in the consultant with him and and the consultant said do you know do you want to go through this treatment and i i i stood quiet because i really in my heart wanted him to go through the treatment but i also know how tough it can be cuz i've seen it so i uh, you know the decision was all his he made the right decision by the way um, and i'm glad he made it but yeah you know in in a selfish kind of way we want our children to get better our, our loved ones to get better yeah. but that treatment is horrendous it's really hard isn't it yeah. yeah in fact there aren't any words i'm incredibly moved by what you're saying and i can see the love and pride you have for your son just mm-hmm. sitting here and um listening to you i can see the the expressions on your on your face i know we're we're doing this in audio for our listeners mm-hmm. but uh we're recording with with video here this was very difficult but like you say you're willing your children to make the decision that you want to see you want to see them mm-hmm. do well you want to see them get through it so you you did go through uh, a second stem cell transplant and you were the donor dad yes i was that was a surprise as well um <laughs> we we thought you know second time around he might have another core donor and i don't know exactly what happened i don't know if that was even entertained they just automatically wanted a better match but I ended up being a a donor for him best thing I ever done but it also came with you know worries and guilt once again you know what if it didn't work there's a lot of what ifs you know what if my blood was too strong and it attacked the cells and what if it wasn't strong enough so it it was really it was an easy decision but i i knew that it would affect me depending on how whether it was successful or not I I know if it wasn't successful there'd be a lot of guilt because obviously I felt responsible. Just so everybody listening knows you you're from El Salvador is that correct? Yeah, I was born in El Salvador, yeah. Born in El Salvador. Yeah. And am I correct in saying that you're a 5 out of 10 match? Is that right? Correct, yeah. So the parents will have 5 out of 10. I'm not sure how much the your sister would have the siblings would have 
but there there would be a 25% match or something like that. Yes. And so I'm not sure how yeah. that works. So after undergoing a few tests between the whole family, uh, I guess the doctors decided that I would be it. Not, they didn't really explain why. I don't know what the difference was between myself and, and Heidi, my wife. I don't know. Maybe we were just closely matched, more closely matched in some way. I mean, we kind of look alike, but <laughs> I don't know if that's it. <laughs> and is, is your wife from El Salvador? No, she is actually was actually born in uh, Britain. Okay. Yeah. So you're a five out of ten match, and this was, as I understand it, it was to sort of induce the GVHD so that that could build up and and get to the stage of graft versus leukemia, which is what consultants look for to fight off any leukemic cells. When did the the stem cell transplant actually take place? Was it? It was just last year. Yeah. Yeah. So um, April, twenty twenty two. Yeah. And were you were you back in Addenbrooke's for that? Yeah, so um, Addenbrooke's yeah. didn't do paediatric transplants, but they do adult ones. So all my treatment was at Addenbrooke's for this one. And how did it compare? I mean, did it compare at all to your first stem cell transplant? It was a bit different. So um, in terms of conditioning, the second time I had radiotherapy, the first time I didn't. Did they explain why that would be? Or was it just a different protocol? Just a different protocol, yeah. Okay. Um, I was on the reduced intensity as well, because um, okay. I'd already had intense chemo from... Yeah. Um, round one and two of my second time. Yeah. So I was already in remission. So they didn't, they felt the need not to cause any more damage than they had to. And also the focus was less on the chemotherapy rather on um, my immune system. So they were hoping that rather than the cord donor, which is, you know, new, um, they could use my dad's cells, which are older cells, um, which would be able to recognize what a cancer cell is and attack it. Yes. So the treatment was important, but it wasn't the main focus like it was the first time. But yeah, it did feel a little bit different. but very similar as well. It was, I think I was much more sick the second time than I was the first because mm-hmm. of the five out of 10 match, my body experienced cytokine release syndrome. Um, and that's when there's like literally a war between my cells and his cells. And um, I was quite sick for a few days. Can you say that again? What syndrome was that? Cytokine release syndrome. I've not heard of that. So can you? Um, so that, that's when um, the donor cells, um, so my dad, he was only a five out of 10 match. So the donor cells come in um, and they attack my cells and I needed um, two doses of chemo um, after my transplant to stop that. And it was hopeful that my dad's cells would be more hyperactive, Mm -hmm. whereas my cells would be weaker. So the chemo would kill my cells to allow his to work. Because at that point, my my cells are kind of resisting his because he wasn't a match. And if it wasn't for that chemo, then I'd develop severe graft-versus-host disease. Well, how have you got on over the, the last sort of year with graft-versus-host disease? And just and just how do you feel now? I mean, how, how has it been? Very difficult. Yeah, I did end up getting GVHD anyway, um, even despite their attempts to prevent it. Not as severe as what it would have been had they left it, right. but it has been a challenge. I'm a bit better now, but I'm always fearing the flare-ups. So I suffer with um, a rash and, you know, sometimes it's just a few patches on my skin. Other times... My feet have literally been red, almost purple, with like very hard skin. Mm-hmm. Um, also, GHD of the the gut, so a lot of diarrhea. So, graft versus host disease affects every cell and organ in your body. Is that yeah, correct? yeah. So, yeah. yeah, the mouth as well. So, I lost my taste buds. Yeah. Have you got your taste back now? Yeah. So you can enjoy yeah. some decent. The treatment food. helps for it. Yeah, the treatment helps. So the steroids work, but the problem is the effects of the steroids. So I've gained a lot of weight. I sweat easily, and I'm very like slow moving. It's not mm-hmm. a very nice feeling being on steroids. But the problem is, as soon as they take me off them, I flare up again. 
So, so it's like yeah. it's like a balance, isn't it, for everything um, for you yeah. at the moment. And I think that's something that I feel is less known about when people see others go through a stem cell transplant. They seem to think that, you know, because why wouldn't you? But, you know, you think the stem cell transplant, bang, you're done. Right, you can get back to normal. But that's not always the case, is it? It's mm. It takes such a toll on your body at, at times that, that you, it's a very slow sort of recovery process isn't it yeah even the um second time um, that it happened it, it came as a shock because i recovered so well after the first mm. so even even myself as a patient had that mindset that it was easy to get back to normal because the first time it was so yeah. this time has been a real shock yeah through your own set of circumstances you've done something quite incredible by as you've mentioned earlier briefly writing a book about your yeah. experience and can you tell me a little bit about how you put that book together and and where it is as well that's the most important thing where is it so people can access it hey so um it started off as a diary in march 2016 so after mm. my diagnosis and i was upset about losing my hair so my mum was like well why don't you just cut a bit of your old hair off stick it in your diary something to remember you by i did actually lose the diary um, and I never did save a piece of my old hair, but <laughs> um, but it turned more into reflections and I was just writing as I was going along and I continued that up until my five years in remission and I thought when it got to five years I'll publish it to see that it's possible to you know bounce back. So in October 2021 I started the publishing process so I made the editing and all that but of course alongside this in October 21 was when they were trying to investigate my neutropenia so it wasn't really the best time for it and I was so close and I relapsed. And by the time I relapsed, it would have been in its final stage of editing. But I decided that I had to put that on hold and rewrite it. So yeah, I spent the next year writing alongside treatment again and a few months after treatment. And it goes all the way to November 2022 and started the publishing process again. And it was published in February this year. The paperback is currently on Shopify. I am gonna try and apply for bookshops soon. Um, but it's currently on my Shopify um, and one pound of the paperback goes to DKMS and Teenage Cancer Trust. And also um, the ebook is on um, Amazon. That is amazing. And can I say congratulations to a fellow author? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Very well done. That's not an easy process either, going through no. um, a self-publishing, I should say independent publishing. But very well done to you because that's, that's amazing. You. I understand this is still an ongoing recovery for you and for all of your family. How are you feeling about things moving forward? And what would you say to somebody who is listening, who is thinking about signing up as a stem cell donor, but doesn't know all the detail? What, what would you say to them? Well, in terms of how I'm um, feeling now, because I've relapsed, I feel like I've lost that safety net. You know, at least after my first time, I knew that if I relapsed, something could be done. But now I know that if it does come back, it's pretty much game over. Uh, and that's something that I've got to kind of live with. And it's very difficult to live with. But at the same time, it's about keeping positive. And you just got to, you know, live your life like, of course, it will never leave your mind. But you've got to not let it get to you. You've got to go out there, get your degree, get a job, and just continue life as normal. In terms of what I'd say to someone that signing up, I would say, please do it. It doesn't take long at all. And I think most people um, think that, you know, causes pain. And it, it probably does. Um, my dad would probably know more about the actual donation side of it. But you've got to think you'd much rather be a donor than a patient. And if you could help someone's life, you know, you save someone's life, then it'd be worth it. You know, I'd definitely do it. If I wasn't a patient, I'd be on that register as well. So, yeah. 
I think what you just said is completely remarkable. It's almost left me speechless. And for your dad, you know, being a donor, was the process fairly simple for you or...? It was fairly simple. And again, the NHS doctors are brilliant. They will walk you through every single, you know, step of that process. When I became the donor for Jake, they treated me as a non-relative, basically. So everything that I did, Jake didn't know about. um, And they kept us really apart until the day after the transplant. Uh, Even during the transplant, obviously, you know, we couldn't see him. Um, It is fairly painless, I would say. Um, There are a few... I would say there's a few days of being uncomfortable uh, leading up to the, the transplant uh, or the harvestation, should I say. Um, during the harvestation, I had to uh, lay down in a bed and two needles in my arms and while they circulated the blood for six hours while I was collecting whatever it is that was collecting the cells. <laughs> I had to stay still, obviously, because you know, the needles were pretty, pretty long and, and sharp uh, and metal. So I couldn't really move my arms for about four to six hours. And you really just had to sit there and, you know, let the machine do what it had to do. Leading up to the, the harvest station, though, they gave me what, I can't remember what they call it. What do they call it, Jake? Uh, GCSF. GCSF, yeah. So those things, oh my goodness. When Jake first got GCSF, he used to tell us how he felt. And we were like, yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it can't be that bad. But oh my goodness, I felt like I was going to explode from the inside out. My back, my head. That was, but that only lasted a few days, about three days. And that's because it's creating, it's allowing you to make more stem cells. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And it actually felt like it, something was growing and it was trying to burst out of my body. Yeah, that's the sensation. But really, that's the only pain. I mean, it's for being able to save a life, that's nothing um, that you have to go through, in reality. And obviously, I've seen firsthand benefits of how it could work twice. Yeah, I think that is amazing. I'm so grateful to you both for telling your story so honestly and openly. I'm sure there'll be plenty of people listening who are thoroughly moved by everything that you've said. And I really hope that it motivates people to find out, educate themselves and uh, and sign up. So thank you ever so much for, for being on. And I wish you so much, Jake. I wish you all the very best. Thank you. Thank you. That brings this episode to a close. I'm so grateful to Jake and Nelson for coming onto the podcast and explaining their story and how it's affected them as a family. What I was totally struck by was Jake's ability to remain focused and positive. His attitude is incredible and quite humbling. And the fact that he's turned his story now into a book, which I've left the details in the notes on the podcast for you to be able to get hold of that book and have a good read. It makes for amazing reading. It's completely inspiring. I hope you found today's conversation both interesting and inspiring, as I have. And as a sparkly new podcast, we are looking for guests to share their inspirational stories. So if you have one, we'd love to hear from you. You can follow us on Twitter at Magical Match Pod and get in touch there if you'd like to join me to share your stem cell story. If you've enjoyed listening to today's episode, do like and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have time, write us a review. We'll be back with a new episode very soon. In the meantime, do consider signing up to the Stem Cell Register. You could be someone's magical match. 
Thank you for listening. Magical Match Podcast is an OB Hive production, originally inspired by a conversation with Andy Mitchell and other like-minded individuals. Magical Match Podcast is hosted and produced by Ginny Walker with audio production by James Walker and music by Cobalt Ocean.